Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to this week's Football Digest, a World Cup special because of course there is, well, there is another story in football at the minute, Cristiano Ronaldo, we will come on to him later, but, but for sake of this podcast at least, there is, there is a World Cup to talk about, getting underway in Qatar on Monday, uh, Sunday even, there was me getting tricked out by the late change in FIFA's schedule, having originally looking to start it on Monday, but now it is Sunday, don't forget that one, Qatar versus Ecuador. Anyway, joining me this morning with perhaps a bit more knowledge of the World Cup schedule than myself are Peter Staunton, and live from Doha, we do have Darren Lewis, who is covering it for Reach's national titles, um, and of course you can read all this stuff uh, on the websites and, and in the papers throughout the tournament as well. Um as touched on, we will get on to Ronaldo in a wee while. Um, but first things first, Peter, England, they've arrived in Doha. Uh, they've touched that. Well, it's not really Doha. It's 40 minutes outside, isn't it? Um, but they've had a great reception um, at their arrival at the team hotel. And, and it looks like they're kind of settling in nicely. As we're speaking, they're going through the rigours of a uh, of a training session right now. Um, but in terms of how things are going forward, and they're, they're kind of acclimatising, aren't they, at the minute? Yeah, well, it's it's not like a usual World Cup where, you know, teams, uh, they break up at the end of a season and then they get sort of a fortnight together, maybe three weeks together, um, and then sort of dive into the World Cup schedule. You know, this has been done. I mean, they're all playing last weekend and, and now they're all together um, in St. George's Park. Got a lovely send off in St. George's Park uh, from all the local kids. And then um, you made their way quite straightforwardly, it looks like, uh, to Doha. Uh, I watched their first training session on TV uh, the other day where they had everybody out in the middle. Uh, didn't look like there was any problems for them. And I don't know, I think Darren's probably closer to the situation out there than I am, and he'll probably be able to tell you a lot more. But yeah, it looks like um, you know, a nice, easy-going start for, for the three Lions as they try and win the World Cup for the first time since 1966. Darren, just just on that, as we uh, touched on, obviously you're out there in, in Qatar for the World Cup. One of the things... Um, and, and we'll come into Wales and then how they've arrived out there as well. But one thing that Wales already did was that when they arrived, they changed their, their training patterns. They were supposed to be training uh, probably in the middle of the heat, I think, on, on Thursday. And they now decided that they were going to push that back so that they train a little bit cooler so they can kind of build up towards it. England, likewise, the first training session was a little bit later on in the day. Uh, Thursday, they're training in, you know, what is probably the, the heat of the sun, really, isn't it? Around, you know, kind of midday, one o'clock, isn't it, out there, Qatar time now. Um, and, and that's when they're training. How have you, you know, I know this sounds like, obviously yourself, you know, you're not going to be as, as probably not as physically strained as the players are whilst they're out there. Um, but I mean, in terms of even for yourselves as well, the, the you know, the kind of heat, how have you found it? And, and how do you think the players are going to adjust to this? Because this is, you know, probably something that they're not expecting in November. You know, like yourselves last weekend, they were in cold Premier League stadiums, flash forward a week, they're, they're now kind of sweating quite a lot. I think on the one hand that they, they won't have been expecting it but on the other they'll have done their homework the England coaching team would have done their homework I've got to tell you being here I can't lie it is hot but it's not oppressively hot um, I, I've been out and about since I arrived on Tuesday and um, yeah absolutely it is hot it, it clearly isn't as hot as it would have been during the summer months um, and the interesting thing about the evenings as well, and bear in mind England play two games at seven o'clock in the group, the second and third, the temperature does go down. And 
so they will be conditions that they'll be able to operate in. It won't be the first time they'll have had temperatures like these. I was in Florida with Chelsea during the summer. It was oppressively hot there, let me tell you. Um, and I think there is, to a certain extent, a lot has been made of the heat over here for very obvious reasons, and I get that. But these are top-class players. All of the teams that arrive here are top-class players who will have had some degree, pardon the pun, of dealing with this uh, kind of position before. And I don't think it's going to be a barrier to them being able to compete in this tournament. Aaron, just sticking with you as well. So obviously um, out there in Qatar, you're getting a bit of a feel of of what the bus is like um, around the World Cup. And and now we're getting the teams arriving and, you know, we saw the great scenes when England arrived on Tuesday and, and the kind of reception they got at the hotel. We even saw yesterday as well, um, you know, plenty of interest um, outside of their training ground. I think there was someone likened it to a scene from um, a crooner singing Angels from uh, by Robbie Williams and likened it to a scene from Phoenix Knights as well. I think one of our reporters out there, Jerry Lawton, who might be joining us later on as well on this podcast. Um but that interest in this England team, um, and I'm sure it will be replicated for, you know, the others that have these big star names like, you know, Brazil, Argentina, probably Portugal as well, when 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 they're all kind of out there training. But such is the interest with the locals and everything is so kind of compact and and kind of on top of you in, in, in Qatar. Do you think the pressure might get to the players where they do have this interest? It sounds weird because they're used to it probably everywhere they go and everywhere they walk, but because it is so compact that there, there are going to be eyes on them literally everywhere throughout this World Cup. I think they will be, but I think they're used to it. I think they're very down-to-earth lads. Uh, I think as far as the pressure that is on them with their club side is concerned, that's greater. I uh, see Jerry's just joining us here. Morning, Jerry. Uh, we're just talking about the, the England players and the pressure that they've come to be used to, even at their age. I mean, if you think about something like Phil Foden, he's only, what, 22? And yet he's won a couple of Premier League titles. He's become used to the pressures of performing on a regular basis for one of the most demanding managers in the world, for one of the best teams in the world. And all of the players are used to the social media scrutiny, the highs and the lows, and the intensity of being able to be consistent in top-level club football. So I don't think it's going to be any different with their countries. They will be aware, of course they will, of what happened with the Lionesses, but I think this is a different type of pressure with England because of all those years of hurt. I've already said it, what, we seven minutes into the, the show. But um, I think as far as the England men's national team is concerned, they have players who are all used to being able to deal with the pressure. And I, I'm expecting them to be able to handle it. I'm not going to go ahead, get ahead of myself and maybe suggest that they're going to breeze through this group because there are some good teams, good players and teams that have been in World Cups before and surprised a few people against very capable sides. So I'm not going to get ahead of myself and suggest that we're going to top the group or whatever else, but I do think the players will be able to compete and perform. Peter, just looking at the hotel that England have as well, it looks like um, I heard someone describing it this morning uh, as they, they wouldn't want for anything in there. They've got everything that they need, you know, pictures of their families from home, ping pong tables. They were doing yoga sessions at the hotel as well uh, earlier in the week, just after they arrived. It looks like they've kind of, everything the FA has done is there to make these players feel really comfortable in this hotel. It looks a fantastic hotel as well. Um, away from the Doha bubble, um, we could probably talk about that as well. I know I discussed it on this show last week, how Germany played a masterstroke in getting so far away from Doha and in, in the north of the country. But in terms of 
the surroundings that England have, Peter, in 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 uh, Alwakra, do you think that that's going to help as well? Being in these nice, luxurious kind of, you know, you can kind of switch off, relax. There's so many things for them to do as well. They've got a nice little beach if they want to go and chill out there for a little bit as well, I suppose. Well. Ned, what I think is, uh, I'll contr- contrast it to the Euros. So I haven't spoken to some people who were involved in the logistics on on certain teams that weren't England uh, at the Euros. They spoke about what a nightmare it was. You know, you're on a flight every two days or so. Uh, there was COVID regulations. Obviously, they had to take tests before they got on flights, stuck at airports, um, you know, flying to, um, to different countries, different grounds all the time. And it wasn't conducive really to... Um, to getting, you know, putting your best foot forward uh, playing tournament football. Whereas I think one of the advantages of of playing a World Cup in, in such a small country like Qatar with tremendous infrastructure going from place to place is that all the teams will really benefit from having that sort of home base structure. So I think that will probably... You know, I think that will do a lot, not just for England, but I think it will do a lot for for all the countries that have that have ended up in whatever base have ended up in in Qatar. I don't think any team will really be, you know, wanting for anything. We're not going to see those long delays. We're not going to see connecting flights. We're not going to see teams stuck in airports or long bus journeys, which you know tend to spoil things a little bit for teams, no matter how good their preparations might be. So, not only England, but I think all sides will will benefit from that. Ned. Just going to bring in uh, Jerry now, who's joined us this morning. Again, like Darren, he's out live in Doha and he's actually joining us live from the uh, England training ground as well, which is phenomenal. Um, Jerry, I wanted to bring you in just to talk about these early training sessions. You know, you've kind of, you and the other reporters that have been at the training sessions the last couple of days, you've got this ideal kind of insight into how England preparing, what's going through it. Um, but these sessions, these early sessions, because there's such a short lead time to this World Cup, we flash back to the Euros last summer. There was, what was it, four weeks, I think, or, you know, three, four weeks that England had together as a group before that first game against Croatia. It might have been a bit shorter, but at least they had time together before that first game. This one, then, it's almost like they're being dropped in, isn't it? That we've got five, to my count, five training sessions potentially before that first game against Iran. These, these early training sessions are going to be so crucial to any chances of success. I think you're right. I think one of the most uh, interesting things here is the heat uh, right now. And this is going to play a big factor. Although the stadiums are going to play the games in a air conditioned and apparently freezing, I've been told by somebody who's actually experienced standing in front of one of these amazing aircon machines. Um, the, where England are training, which is the Awakra football stadium, is actually exposed to the sun, 33 degrees heat. I've just come off now. I've been standing on the terrace for about 10 minutes and I am dripping in sweat. It is really, really warm. And the locals here are saying that this is unseasonably warm, even for the desert. Uh, we're apparently at about 10 degrees higher than we normally are at this time of year. They're confidently predicting that this is going to drop within the next week or two. And some people are saying there is even the prospect of rain in the desert, uh, which will be quite a a thing. It happens once every four or five years, apparently. Um, That will help England, obviously. But um, the the training sessions that I've experienced, we only get to see the first sort of 15 minutes before it's all taken behind closed doors so they can work on the details of tactics and various individual things. But it's been relatively light. Certainly the first training session was very, very light, more of a warm down, 
gentle running, nothing too strenuous. Today, they stepped it up definitely. There was a lot more ball work and a lot more sort of intensity about the stuff. Um, uh, James Madison missing, by the way, today. Uh, he's still doing his own work, uh, recovering from his injury. Nothing, I don't think, to concern anybody. Uh, he talked about it yesterday in an interview, and basically he's he's dealing with his own recovery in his own way. So the fact he's not out there, I don't think is a, is a, a revelation. He's just dealing with a, he's a slightly different uh, situation to the other team. The other 25 are out there, look to be enjoying it, lots of laughs, but they are all sweating and the heat is clearly having an impact. It is extremely warm and they are training in the middle of the day. Uh, something about mad dogs and Englishmen, I suppose. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, uh, that's what they're doing. Um, they all look good. They look happy. The team looks very united. There's lots of laughter. And um, it seems like a happy training camp. They're a little bit out the city, 20 minutes from uh, from Doha. And it's an interesting move by Gareth. Um, where they've gone is an area down on the Red Sea, just yards from the beach. It's beautiful. Um, but it is also a mile away from the hustle and bustle of Doha. Um, and they, there is a, the closest you encounter, encounter they're going to get is probably with a local camel, of which there are many wandering around the hotel. Um, very interesting spot, very relaxed. I was talking to the team this morning, and some of them are saying that the food is incredibly good. They've been blown away by how great the grub is. They're saying that the local produce, the fruit, the veg, all of this, it's just amazing. And they're really, really enjoying it, and they're enjoying settling in. The hotel seems happy. The camp seems happy. Um, and I say the, the heat really is the only issue, which it, it, for England, I think, particularly compared to, say, if you're a backer of Brazil, Argentina, it may be somewhere to chuck some money. But I don't want to uh, to ruin things too soon. Jerry, when you say you, you were talking to one or two, or, or, or were you asking for a friend about the food? <laughs> uh, I was talking to it. Yes, I was. <laughs> I think but no comment, to be fair. But <laughs> <laughs> the um no they they're saying don't that worry, the food Jerry, is great. You're my own heart. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> the um the uh, yeah apparently it's really really great. I mean I've got to say uh, what is also amazing uh, and surprised me doesn't surprise me, but the the welcome that England received. I mean I was there when England arrived, and I this is now my third World Cup all the Euros in betweens. I've never seen a welcome for an England team at a hotel that, that they received here, the level of it. It was crazy. It was pandemonium. It was like a rock star has entered the room. Uh, there were bands, there were drummers drumming. There's a one guy from the Gambia who's, I'm talking to him and he's, he's in floods of tears. He's crying because this is the moment he says he gets to see the England heroes he saw on a little black and white television years ago and he's seen them for the first time and this guy is crying in front of me it was unbelievable scenes uh, I've never seen them certainly not at any other training base uh, or, or camp um, so I think England can expect an awful lot of support and goodwill Jerry, we watch football all over the world, of course, to, uh, and all over Europe. It's our jobs. We've been doing it for around about what, two decades now. Um, when you see that kind of thing, does we know all about the other related headlines uh, around Qatar, but we you consider that this is the first Arab World Cup and, and it's come to this region for the first time. When you see the kind of scenes, and I know you're in the heart of it, does that kind of say to you, you know, that there is at some level that justification for bringing it to territories that otherwise wouldn't have it. I've got to say, Darren, being honest with you, 
my, my views changed just in the few days that, that I've been here. I, I've actually been to Qatar before a couple of times during the process of stadium buildings. And I feared for the World Cup when on those previous visits. It's so quiet. Um, and and the, the locals are so private. I thought you're going to bring effectively the greatest show on earth uh, and all that comes with it, good and bad, uh, to this to this desert oasis, basically. Are you really ready for it? Since we've been here, the fever pitch, um, excitement that is existing, uh, there's got to be something said for bringing the World Cup to places that you would not normally experience. It, uh, that People are so excited. It really is bizarre. And it's it could be a really, really interesting tournament. There's a real buzz about the place. And people who've not even... Taxi drivers, for instance, who 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 we've had a lot of contact with while we've been burning around the city. When I mentioned the World Cup, most of the taxi drivers said there's only one World Cup, and that's the T20s. And England has already won that, so do we need to win another one? Um, I explained that obviously the football, and they're suddenly taking an interest in football, and they're loving it, they're embracing it. There is there are a lot of issues about this World Cup, as you know, Darren the reason to appoint it, to make it here. How did it get here? What went on? We know about that. We know about the issues, the human rights. We know about the, it's a story that's been repeated and repeated and repeated. But if you actually live here, I think it's an entirely different thing. And I think for the people who are living here, they are completely, from what we've seen so far, embracing this. Got to remember, most of the fans haven't yet arrived. So I'm basing this largely on the experience of the locals on the ground. But they are really, really embracing it. They're supporting the England team. There's a, they, the England team was greeted by a group of Indian guys who have formed their own England supporters club a week before the tournament. They met up in a local park for basically a party to celebrate how great England is. And they were all, all turned up fully decked out in flags, giving it 100% with their own rival terrace band chanting England terrace chants. It was quite remarkable. and. You know, we can all sit there and, and, and talk about what we feel about Qatar hosting the World Cup. But if you live here, I think this is extremely important. And I think if Qatar is going to open up to the world, this is a way of doing it. Um, and, you know, I think that's got to be taken into the melting pot of, of whether this tournament should be happening. <laughs> Uh, one other team uh, that are going to be out in Qatar as well. Obviously, we do have to touch on them a little bit. The other home nation, Wales. Um Peter, I'm going to come to you on this one as well. Uh, so with the Welsh, first World Cups in 64 years, isn't it? I mean, I might have got my maths wrong there, of course, you know, because numbers were never my strong point. I've got an E in statistics at school, but we move on from that. Um, and, and first World Cup in a very, very long time for Wales, isn't it? 1954, I knew there was a four in it anyway. Um, but in terms of their preparations and everything else that has gone on, for it, the fact that they're having to, you know, it, it kind of seems quite funny as well, and bless them, but obviously having to move that first training session because they didn't realise how hot it was going to be, a little bit of an issue, but they're adjusting to it, they're adapting to it, they're in that Doha bubble, they are in Doha, they're based in there, I think I looked at it the other day as well, I think it's 20 kilometres from their hotel to their training base, England, I think have got a five minute car ride in comparison, so in terms of, of that as well, trying to get across and, and everything else, it's going to be an experience that the Welsh are going to enjoy, there's no doubt about that. But what is realistic for them in Qatar, potentially, Peter? I think their World Cup final is the game against USA, uh, the, the first game of the tournament. Um, I'm looking at I'm looking at USA squad and I'm looking at the Wales squad and I'm thinking man for man, USA probably 
slightly shaded. But that's not to say that I don't think Wales are capable of getting a result uh, against the United States uh, men's national team. And I think whatever Wales do in the tournament, it's going to come down whether they can beat USA or not. Because let's say that Iran, why... I wouldn't call them whipping boys. I would expect that all the rest of the teams should be able to pick up their points against Iran. England are probably too good at this stage, I would say, for the other teams in the group, although they've had their issues scoring goals. And I think that Wales's results have been so patchy. Um, you know, I'm looking at their Nations League results and and, and their results down throughout uh, 2022 in particular. And they've ha- they have managed to, you know, sort of pull out those results when they needed them, whether that be Austria, whether that be Ukraine. Um but haven't been able to perform with any sort of consistency. So for me, they need to look at that first game against the USA. If they can get three points there, I think they should be reasonably confident uh, of going to the knockout rounds. But then again, if the United States beat them, I think it could be curtains. Moving on to the biggest probably talking point aside from the World Cup and actually probably is the biggest talking point in football this week. Ahead uh, of the World Cup, Cristiano Ronaldo uh, setting his Man United career legacy and everything else on fire with that uh, conversation with Piers Morgan this week on Talk TV. Um, Darren, I'll come to you first on, on this one. Um, quite simply, it's the end of his career at Man United, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's the reason why he's decided to do it now. He knows he has no future at the club. He's torched most of the relationships that he's had now with the kind of thing that he said. We saw those images, didn't we, of the mural of uh, in featuring Ronaldo being taken down from Old Trafford. The club have put their statement out saying that they'll look for full context and act after the entirety of the interview is being broadcast. So I think Friday going into Saturday, we should have some direction as to what they intend to do. They've broken with certainly recent trend, uh, tradition in terms of being vocal and backing the manager. I remember after Ronaldo walked down the tunnel and they issued that statement, didn't they, suggesting they wouldn't play, confirming he wouldn't play in the subsequent match and basically sending out the message that they were fully behind Ted Hawk. It was the right thing to do. And... I think in this case, they will act as they should because what Ronaldo has done is disrespected the manager, the club. Garnacho, who scored the winning goal, is the coming force, young, talented, exciting player. He's disrespected him. The headline should have been about him on Monday. Instead, they were completely wiped out. He's disrespected the team. We're starting to win again and they're looking good and consistent. and. I think he's disrespected the fans as well because he expects to be starting every match, whether he's in form or out of form, on the basis of who he is. And that's just not feasible. It's not sustainable. And if you look at the other clubs in the top six, they are basically young, energetic, dynamic, with forward lines that can score goals, that are mobile, that are moving in the direction that the clubs want to go in. And I think Ronaldo really is all about brand Ronaldo. And so something will have to give. And by the weekend, I expect that it will. 
Peter, I'll come to you because I know beforehand you said to me before we came live today that you had some pretty strong views on this. I'm sure Jerry will as well. Jerry, we'll come to you afterwards as well, being a Man United fan. So I'm sure equally easy, you have some easy. views. <laughs> I'm, um, Ned, I'm intrigued. When Darren says something might happen by the weekend, I, I know he's putting out a, a, a little teaser there. I wonder has he got any more for us. <laughs> Digesting. Only <laughs> on the basis that we know that you know United are... Um, they're just going to take stock because it would be very easy to act now without seeing the full show, the full interview. And, you know, our colleagues at to Talk TV, they're not stupid. It's a superbly executed interview. Uh, they've leaked bits of it, the really hard-hitting bits. We've all been talking about it for three or four days. They put out half of it last night, Wednesday night. They'll put the other half out Thursday night. And, and so you can't really act as a club until you've seen everything and you know what the full picture is. But okay. as I say, what we've seen from this most recent uh, Man United uh, hierarchy is that, and bear in mind, you know, he has attacked the club at every level, including the ownership of the club as well. His position is untenable. You know, any one of us four, let's, you know, if we were to give an interview <laughs> criticizing our company at every level, I'm not sure we could expect to roll back into work in the office when the World Cup is over and say, all right, let's say you go, you know, because it just wouldn't happen. And I think as far as Ronaldo is concerned, he is a legend. He's a wonderful footballer. He has been over the years. It's incredibly sad to see the way that this is falling apart. And I'd say one last thing. All the stuff he said, he just strikes me as a guy. And there are many, I've spoken to ex-footballers since the interview, the first bits of the interview came out earlier this week. And they understand and they identify with it. He's a guy who cannot really accept that the magic, you know, the light is dying. He's come to the end of his career. He's been surrounded for a long, long time by people who have not known how to say no to him. He's been able to, to do it at the highest level. His consistency has been outstanding. He's been a winning machine in terms of goals. He's been had that single focus. But the game is now moving on and that's not betrayal on the part of United that's football that's just the way things happen and all of us have covered enough football and watched enough football and everybody watching this broadcast will know that football moves on it's brutal in the way that it does but it moves on and I think Ronaldo at the moment is struggling to be able to accept that but I certainly think as far as United are concerned they do intend to move on and I do not expect him to see him pull on the United shirt ever again I um I've got a certain degree of sympathy with Ronaldo um during this. I'm going to go back to the circumstance of how he arrived. I mean, there's I don't think there's any dispute. I mean, Ronaldo said it himself last night in the in the interview with Paris Morgan that he was close to joining Man City. There were late interventions within 72 hours of him joining um he was within 72 hours of joining Man City and there was an intervention from on high at Man United to pretty much lay it all out there and beg him to come back to Man United. And he did so. Uh, he top scored last season uh, in a team uh, that changed managers that was underperforming. The second manager didn't want him, uh, didn't want to play him. Uh, he was voted into the team of the season. He was given the Man United Player of the Year award. And now it's all his fault. I I think he's been made somewhat of a scapegoat for, for the rest of the problems around Man United. because. He, 
although he's come out there and he's criticised the club at, at every level, I don't think there's a United fan out there that wouldn't support Ronaldo's points uh, about the Glazers, about the dysfunction at the board level, uh, about the lack of direction on the football level, getting in people like Ralph Ranić. I don't think he said anything that wouldn't chime quite positively uh, with somebody who genuinely cares about Man United. And I go back to the dressing room that he used to play in. You know, he mentioned players like Rio. He mentioned players like like Roy Keane. And I think from a guy who is, was established as a professional footballer with that ethos, that dressing room ethos, to then come back into the club and see it be so far removed from what it used to be, he probably is is quite frustrated and thinking, hey, What's happened to Man United? This is the club that we're supposed to be. And he talks about the young players maybe not caring, a a change of attitude uh, down throughout the generations. And I think that Ronaldo, as much as the rest of the Man United fans, is he harks for the, the way Man United used to be. And the easiest thing for Man United to do is when they have that sort of canary in the coal mine at the club, remind them of what they need to be. The easiest thing for the club to do as an institution is to get rid of it, to get rid of that noisy intrusion. Um, so that will only ensure that the path that they, that they go down is going to be one that will never, ever be able to rescue or, or relive the sort of glories that they had before. Ned, I, I, the one point I would make is that there is nothing in terms of the state of the club um, and, the, and the squad and, and the conditions around the club that United, former United players haven't said before and fans haven't said before. Fans have protested against the Glazers ever since they arrived. And that protest has been ongoing despite the trophies that the club have won. So I don't think Ronaldo is necessarily saying any different to what they had said. The other thing is, you, if you talk about the individual things he's done, yes, that might well be that he has won that, that he has been top scorer and there has been individual success. But football is a team game. And any individual that signs for a football club has to be able to fit into their team structure. And the idea that he's been held a scapegoat for the problems at Man United, I, I don't think actually holds water because nobody's blaming Ronaldo for the fact that United for a long time before the changes Ten Hag had made were unable to defend. Nobody's blaming Ronaldo for that. Nobody's blaming Ronaldo for the recruitment that in midfield wasn't good enough until that he was able to acquire Ten Hag, uh, Ericsson and Casemiro to make them look far more solid and well-balanced in the centre of the park. Fact is, Ronaldo simply doesn't have the mobility to be able to lead the line in the 2022-23 Premier League team, uh, elite Premier League team. And I... I think that's got nothing to do with any kind of vendetta, whatever. We talk about the, the, the players that he played with and grew up with. Those players are long since retired and football has moved on. You talk about the younger players who don't have his happy appetite. Well, on the one hand, I would say um, Garnacho looks as though he's got a great attitude. Elanga looks like he's got a great attitude. And on the other, it's nigh on impossible to judge a young player by the exacting standards of Cristiano Ronaldo. He is among, you know, he comes around once every 20, 30 years. Uh, He is incredibly driven because he has incredible ability. And he he is right now one of the two best players of this entire generation, probably among the, the, the four players, the greatest players football has ever seen. 
So in that regard, I would say that's a little bit unfair on the young players who are just trying hard. And if you want to talk about players and their attitudes, is the right attitude, the right message to send to some of these players to behave in the way that Ronaldo does, where when you don't play, you're ill. Or if you're not happy at not being called off the bench to contribute in a game, you walk down the touchline early. Is that the right message to be sending out? I, I Listen, Ronaldo's had a very difficult year and the issues off the pitch are infinitely more important than the issues on the pitch involving Ronaldo. There is universal sympathy for that. I would never, there is not one qualification within that whatsoever. But I think from a football perspective, football moves on and all of us have known and have watched enough football to know that this is far from a unique situation and it's being painted into a situation where a football club is being wronged for taking a common sense decision. Arteta at Arsenal did it last season with Aubameyang and everyone did a, uh, took a sharp intake of breath. Now he has a younger, more vibrant, more energised side scoring goals at the top of the Premier League with a great chance of competing and going all the way. Football moves on. And I think we have to move away from the narrative that because Ronaldo is a great player, that to say anything other than that is either disrespecting him or using him as a scapegoat. Because I just don't, I, I don't see it. Just wanted to bring Jerry back in here uh, as the as the Man United fan, just to get his take as well on this, um, on the whole kind of you know would have been keeping abreast of, of the situation. I'm sure from from Doha as well. Where where do you sit on this on this, Jerry? Is he right to air his grievances? Has he has he tarnished his legacy, reputation amongst the fans? What what does this mean to the fan base? I think it's a difficult one, and I almost wear two hats here because um, obviously as a fan and as a as a as somebody covering stories, as a journalist, and they're two different things. I think um, if I was going to take the professional route. Uh, I think Darren's spot on, uh, has called it superbly. Um, you can't do this. Uh, it's just obviously a, a, a way of ending a, a fantastic, amazing career at Manchester United. Um, I think also, I think that he's a real problem from what I've seen and analysed, and I am in Doha and I've been flying for part of this, but obviously I am abreast of it. His real problem for me are the comments about Ten Hag. I think they're the ones that might be the the line that is crossed that mean you can't step back. I think the the, the, the issues about the owners there will be some there will be an element of Manchester United supporters who have looked at the club and the way it's been run and the leaking roof at Old Trafford and thought, well, this club compared to beautiful Manchester City and all their trophies down the road, this club seems to be stepping backwards. And they'll agree with some of the things that Cristiano Ronaldo has said. Uh, and he's perhaps tapping into some kind of uh, climate that exists within a certain, not all, but a certain element of the Manchester United fans. But I think where he's got it wrong and where he, where, where this may be the end or the start of it is to criticise the manager so openly. Um, and I, from just speaking more as a fan in a way, Ten Hag is incredibly popular at Manchester United. That People know the difficult job he, he came in to do. People know the state of the club when he arrived. And I think most people were intrigued by him when he started. But for the first time, speaking as a fan uh, in a number of years, there does seem to be a direction to what he's doing. He does seem to have a plan 
Now, that may fail or it may succeed, but it is a plan. He has a way of playing. He has certainly increased the effort, shall we say, the, the way the team, the intensity of the team's performances when it had lagged embarrassingly behind uh, even mid-table teams in the Premier League. Um, there were, at the end of last season, for instance, there was no guarantee we could have beaten anybody, uh, speaking as a fan. Now, we're tougher to beat already, and we already had Pep Guardiola just a couple of weeks ago acknowledging publicly for the first time he can see the shoots at Manchester United being reborn. And I think that, that certainly from the, my, the fans I speak to, they, they rate this guy. And um, at the moment, although we all love Cristiano Ronaldo, because he is a legend, and everything Darren said is absolutely right, the guy is superhuman, incredible footballer, the consummate professional in terms of his athleticism, his ability to keep playing, along the lines of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, really, in that sense, looks after himself, a model in that sense. But where I don't think he's been a model is the behaviour we've seen in the past few days. And I think he's fallen short of it. Um, I feel sorry that it's happened. I know the personal circumstances. I feel desperately sorry for him and understand it. I just wish somebody had put their arm around him and said, look, if you're going to do this, you don't have to do this this way because I'm sure there is another way. Um, he's chosen to take basically the nuclear option. And I just think the criticism of the manager is the one thing that you're not going to come back for. And I don't think Ten Hag is going to take it. I'd be very, very surprised if he does take it. It sends an appalling message to every other player at Manchester United and probably elsewhere. Um, Ronaldo's a model. People should be looking up to this guy because he's a hero, and rightly so. Uh, he, without him, Manchester United will, would not have won another Champions League. Certainly, I remember that game distinctly. The guy is an absolute model in terms of how he looks after himself. But I say off the field, he's sadly wanting. I do think one other issue that we haven't discussed, I don't think, I have been dropping in and out because, would you believe, my phone overheated here. And <laughs> I don't know if that's coming back. It's actually, that just says something about the conditions I've now moved into a better you're internet. You're meaning to the phrase, what topics, Jerry? <laughs> sizzling, Darren, sizzling. Um, but one of the issues I was going to raise, which I don't know if you've, issued, you've discussed, but the sponsors at Manchester United play a role in this for me. Um, my feeling is that Cristiano Ronaldo may not be here now had it not been for the sponsors at the start of the season when United were in this desperately sad position outside the Champions League, new manager, no real hope, uh, fans as low as they could be for, for, short of relegation. And I think the sponsors, for them to got rid of Ronaldo, the one key figurehead of the club at that point, could have been critical. You could have seen real sponsorship issues, real cash flow issues. The whole structure of the club could have been threatened. They persuaded him to stay. It's not worked out. Um, I don't think, frankly... He's the best player for that position right now, being honest. I think it's, this is, we're not talking about a footballer that's sitting on a bench because the manager doesn't like him. Ten Hag is playing him. He's just not scoring. And, and Ronaldo is showing that frustration both on and off the pitch. Um, and and he, he's got to really look at himself and, and, and accept. He's, he's, he's getting older. Um, maybe the start of the end of his career is coming. It's hard. I get it. But... I think the sponsors play an, play an integral part. And the arrival of new stars, of whom we've been talking, 
is going to make this easier for the club. And the very fact that we are, we are, Manchester United are, uh, where they are in the league, good results, couple of very good results, some lucky ones, couple of good ones, uh, particularly Liverpool, Manch- and, uh, you know, th- particularly that result and the Tottenham performance, uh, the best I've seen for many years. Um, I th- they're in a position where it makes this decision easier than it would have done a few months ago. And I think you, they, the, the, they'll be able to sell it to the sponsors. That we may need to part company with this man now because this is a, 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 a you know, he's stepped over that line. I just think that financially, and that's a big thing, let's take football out of it. This is a business and that matters. And what they say matters to this club. Uh, and it does to every club. And I actually think it's an easier sell to take some action now than it would have been a few months ago, simply because the team's better. The manager's got his feet under the desk and we've got some young talent that we, everybody's very, very, very excited about. I mean, excited. So I think Darren's right. It could happen fairly soon. Um, and I hope really just from a fan's perspective, I hope it happens relatively happily because he is brilliant and I've loved watching him. He played a huge part in my life as a fan. We could talk about Ronaldo, I'm sure, for the rest of uh, the rest of the World Cup, really, to be fair. But the one thing that I do want to just lastly touch on before we move on to, to the topics about who might win the World Cup. Um, Darren, on Ronaldo, just finally, this is all about United and his career there, and we talked about it. But he's going into a World Cup with Portugal. There are Man United teammates, obviously, in that Portuguese camp with him as well, and Bruno, and Bruno Fernandes and Diogo Dallo. But just on the whole for that Portuguese team, is this going to bring an unwelcome amount of attention to that squad and camp ahead of the World Cup? Because I presume every single press conference, no matter who it is, it could be the third choice goalkeeper, it could be the assistant coach, whoever is up, they will be asked questions about Ronaldo and this interview. Absolutely, yes. It's No one's doing their job if they don't ask about Ronaldo in the context of what has happened in the build-up to this World Cup. And it, it, I would suggest it's not really helped the Portugal preparations. It's been quite interesting to see some of the footage of him in relation to Bruno Fernandes and Gio Cancelo. Uh, and it didn't look as though he was getting the warmest of welcomes from them on the training pitch in the last few days. Obviously, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. So um, just in case anyone wants to tweet me. Um, <laughs> I think as far as Ronaldo is concerned, though, the, the fascinating thing, I always remember before a, the international break earlier this season, I remember seeing a headline on one of the, on the front page of one of the Portuguese dailies. And basically, it translated to less Ronaldo, more Portugal. So it isn't even the case that at club level, he is being forced out, but there is adulation for him on, on the international stage. At international level, they too see a forward line capable of moving forward without Ronaldo, João Félix, Bruno Fernandes, uh, 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 Bernardo Silva. Uh, there are lots of good players, and bear in mind, they lifted the Euros without Ronaldo on the pitch, so they can cope without him. And it's, it's quite fascinating, actually, some of the slavish devotion that I've seen to Ronaldo. I understand why he's... he's, he's imprinted himself into our consciousness over a sustained period of time with remarkable feats of consistency. So, of course, we see him and we give him the credit he deserves, but football is moving on without him. Younger, capable players are doing the business. 
without him. At the press conferences so far, apparently the head coach was saying that he has gastroenteritis. We'll see how quickly that clears up. Um, it might well do once the second part of his interview goes out. Um, but I don't think it's helpful, all of this, in relation to the World Cup challenge. We'll leave them now, though, chat there for now, though, chaps. And, uh, yeah, definitely um, sure more to come from it uh, uh, throughout the World Cup for, for sure. Um, but we're going to finish the show today by just going around all the different contenders. You know, we spoke about England, spoke about Portugal a bit, whether or not they'll be contenders, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Might be the most Ronaldo thing in the world for him to be able to, kind of similar to the Euros in, in 2016 when Messi got knocked out in the semi-finals and he dragged, well, he didn't really drag Portugal into the final, but there was the sense of inevitability there, at least, anyway, is what I'm trying to get at. But, Peter, uh, Brazil, they're most people people's favourites, favourites of the bookies, uh, at least anyway. It's been a long time since Brazil lifted the World Cup. 2002 was the last time they did it. Falling short in 2006, 2010. Not even got past the quarterfinals since then. Well, apart from obviously that that nightmare in in in, in their own backyard against Germany in 2014. <laughs> but there's been lots of... It's not like they've been short on talent in that point. You know, you look at those squads that they've had at previous World Cups. They've just not been able to deliver. But is the time now for this group, this crop, to be able to win that trophy back again for Brazil? I think they're justified in their place as as favourites for the tournament. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think they've got a very complete squad this year. I think they've got depth in most positions. Probably two of the best three goalkeepers in the world are Brazilian at the minute, and Alison Edison. Um, and they get stronger from there as you move up the field. Um, you know, great centre-backs, good options at, at full-back. Uh, Bruno Guimaraes and Casemiro and Fabinho and people like that from midfield and then the strike line is, is all-star. The one caveat, the one question mark I would put against Brazil at the minute is that I think they've struggled against even modest European teams at tournaments. And although the results have been fantastic over the course of the last couple of years, you know, obviously getting the Copa America a couple of years ago as well, <clears throat> I'm not sure how tested they are against European opposition. So they have played very well uh, in qualification campaigns and at, at South American tournaments, but there's a different way of approaching these European teams. And I actually think that they've got a much tougher group, a much tougher group than a lot of people would expect. Serbia, I think, are a fantastic football team. We know we spoke about Cristiano Ronaldo there. I mean, Serbia uh, turned Portugal over to qualify for the World Cup. And they've got fantastic attacking talent too, you know, and the likes of uh, Vlajevic and Mitrovic. I know he's injured at the minute, but they've also got uh, uh, Dusan Tadic as well. They've got fantastic talent within within that squad. And we know that Switzerland are a very, very accomplished tournament team as well. So for me, I, I'm not sure I rate Cameroon this year. Uh, probably lucky to be at the World Cup, uh, but you just never know how things might go. But it's those other two team, teams within Brazil's group that I think are going to cause uh, somewhat of a uh, of a problem. I think we'll have a much better indication of how Brazil are going to get on at this World Cup, depending on whether they can unlock uh, teams like Serbia and Switzerland. But if they come and blow those teams away in the group, I don't think there's any doubt that they'll be justified uh, as their favourites uh, for the tournament. But I would say that one caveat against them, although they've got, you know, the likes of uh, Neymar as well, of course, up front, Anthony, fantastic player too, Rafinha. Uh, the one question mark is how will they do uh, against those European teams? 
I had to uh, talk the missus into the, the wife into uh, the fact that she's got Serbia in her work sweepstakes, and she was like, "Oh, it's going to be awful." But like, there, uh, you know, it's <laughs> kind of using the same reasons that that Peter outlined there that it isn't all doom and gloom. Um, Darren, coming to you next. We've spoken about Brazil. We'll speak about the other side that's highly rated from South America, and and you've also spoken a lot about Ronaldo. So you might as well speak a little bit about Lionel Messi um, as well. Lionel Scaloni is the coach of them. He seems to have kind of instilled this, this winning mentality in this Argentinian squad. They won Copper America. They won Finalissima against Italy earlier this year. So where Peter was saying that Brazil haven't had that test against the European opposition, well, Argentina wiped the floor of the European champions, albeit ones that didn't qualify for the World Cup, but they wiped the floor of them earlier this year at Wembley. Is this the crowning moment in Lionel Messi's career? It's going to be his last World Cup. Does he win that one trophy that has eluded him? It's a really good question because I think... It, it seems weird to say about a team with Messi in it, but he isn't the most important person in that setup. As you rightly pointed out, that the most important person is Scaloni because he's got the Argentinians on a 35-game winning streak. He was assistant to George Sampaoli four years ago in Russia, and they were chaotic. I remember covering them in Russia. They were all over the place, and um, they were moments of brilliance, but Sampaoli was a maverick figure, the team kind of was a reflection of the manager and it was fun to watch, but it was a real shame that such a talented group of players weren't able to deliver. But in, in, in Scaloni, he's so well thought of. He used to coach the under-20s um, and he was so well thought of by the FA, the Argentina FA, that they rejected the chance to go from a qualified coaches and they said, look, that's our man. Um, and they've been fantastic, as you've been saying. They beat Brazil when they were in the final of the Cup of America to win uh, that trophy last year. Um, they were undefeated in their World Cup qualifying campaign. Um, and I think in terms of the um, man management skill that he has, um, he's really impressed a lot of the senior players with his ability to man-manage situations and to develop a relationship with uh, Messi that has enabled Messi to bring his best self to the to the table. The way that they play in midfield, they've got three workhorses, uh, DePaul, Paredes, and Michelson, uh, uh, um, who are all able to do the work so that Messi doesn't have to worry about any defensive responsibilities. He just thinks about going forward. I think he's scored already for club and country this season around about 20 goals. And I think he comes into this World Cup in superb form. So if you're talking about potential winners, Argentina have to be up there. The one thought I think they might have is that they tend to play a high line. The fullbacks like to push forward and leave space in behind them because they like to back up the attacks. And Colombia in the semifinal of the Copa America um, were able to take advantage of the space in behind but it might well be that they can outscore opponents and so they've got the confidence to be able to do that. But certainly, as far as Scaloni's concerns, the best out of Messi's got a wonderful set of players and they are serious contenders for this World Cup. Jerry, just going to come to you finally, mindful of uh, time perhaps getting away from us a little bit this morning, but that's all fine, that's all good. Um, you know, other nations... You know, we're talking about Germany, a youthful team, perhaps their time to come of age, but then they were sluggish against Oman in the friendly. Spain, they're also putting their faith by the look of it in youth as well. You know, no Thiago this time left out in favour of the likes of Gavi and Pedri. Instead, you've got Louis van Gaal saying that Netherlands can perhaps go all the distance and win it. Not on the basis of what I saw at the Euros, if I'm honest, but Louis van Gaal took them to the semi-finals and a third place finish in, in 2014. 
However, the one team that is leading the European charge just so happens to be the defending champions, France. Again, a, a team that kind of failed to deliver at the Euros last summer, but they went on to win the Nations League after that. They've won the World Cup, they're the defending champions, um, so they have that on their side. But they seem to have a bit of a growing injury list. No Paul Pogba, no Ngola Kante this time around. Christopher Nkunku added to that list as well this week in training with uh, uh, an innocuous challenge. One of those unfortunate ones that used to happen for England all the time, isn't it, where you have a, an injury in training just before the start of a tournament. But that misfortune seems to be falling on France this time. They've still got a very talented squad, but is this injury list that is adding and adding and adding something that could hold them back from defending their title? Personally speaking, I think of all the European nations, France have the best chance despite the injuries. I mean, Paul Pogba uh, and, and N'Golo Kante, huge misses. But one thing that I think takes me away from, say, Germany or Spain, although they've got very, very talented squads, uh, is experience. I, I just think we need experience, and that's going to be so important in a tournament like this. We're dealing with a world of firsts here. I mean, it's the first tournament at Christmas. It's the scheduling, the desert, the location, the fact we're all in one place. We can go on about the number of firsts for an entire podcast. But the fact of this is that uh, experience counts in these big games, in these big moments. And I still think France has it. I think they have a deep core uh, in that team that play together, know each other. Um, and, I mean, I remember, obviously, the, the, World, the World Cup final most amazing, I thought, amazing performance. Brilliant team. And some considerable gap between France and the rest. For me, it's whether France, whether anybody else has caught up in, the, in, in these four years. I tend to, if I, I've already declared because of the weather and the climate and also the squad, I think Argentina, personally, if I had to put my mortgage somewhere, I, I, I really do fancy Argentina. They've got the world's best football shirt, indisputable. Um, they've produced two of the bravest players I've ever seen and they seem united and they seem to have a, um, a much better situation the way they handle Messi and his ageing years allowing him to, the freedom to play I think that's going to be very very hard to beat and I think using his experience and his sheer knowledge of where the ball is going to be they, there's a, there is a really strong argument for Argentina I, I think France of the European teams I'm still going to pose the most, the, the biggest threat. I mean, Mbappe, great player. I hope to see him at Manchester United, if you believe the rumours in all those nasty newspapers. Um, they, um, I think they still have it, and I think experience is going to tell. I think it's really, strangely, had they made it here, I would have actually backed somebody like Italy here, because I think Italy are designed to, tr to win a competition like this. Solid defence. Um, they'd love to, and I, I just think the fact they're not here is incredible for England because, of course, we've never beaten Italy in any major championship in the history of football. So the fact is, it's a great relief that they haven't qualified. Without Italy, I put France as the the kings of Europe in the tournament. Um, I think with Brazil, uh, as Peter said, I, I think the group's tough. I think we'll know a lot more about Brazil after the group if they get through this group. And I do mean that. Switzerland and Serbia, Serbia particularly, your, your wife would be pleased to know, really, really great team. And, and I think that will be a tough test coming early in the tournament. If they survive that, top the group, I think, you know, they're going to be very, very tough to beat. It's very exciting. Just great that, uh, we're, we're, you know, we've got these, these whole nations coming together in this new nation, if you like, to, uh, 
to create a wonderful tournament. I think it is going to be a wonderful tournament. That's the vibe I'm getting here, particularly in the England. Don't discount England, by the way. Um, I must say that because most of them are standing around me at the moment. But don't discount England, seriously. They have a system. They have a great striker who's in top form, who's who's never been playing better. And I and they have a and they have a self belief and that and and uh, and they've got experience. They've been there. Let's not forget that the, the route we every year we've got closer. Um, who knows? I mean, the, we could well face France in the quarterfinals if the results pan out the way we think they could. If football was ever played on that wonderful um, wall chart that you never actually to kick a ball and just predicted the results, we could end up playing France. We could take the view that the French injuries. We've got a chance, perhaps, because of those injuries, perhaps. And if we do that, who knows? We've got tournament football experience. Do not discount England. Um, the third favourites, I notice overnight, maybe a little inflated. Um, but uh, for me, um, France, then England from Europe right now. I think Spain and Germany will be strong, but the lack of experience, we have more experience. So come on the three lines is what I say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Jerry, we'll leave it there. As you said, it sounds like the England boys are training right behind you in that Bedouin tent. We yeah, can hear the boots flying up and everything. It's football darts, Ned. Football darts. <laughs> oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I heard one of the reporters yesterday managed to score for Rabona, so maybe we need to get him in the team. Um, but for sure, it is going to be a, a brilliant tournament. Um, I'm saying this sat at home looking outside, and I can see the miserable rains. So I'm sure Darren and, and Jerry. Uh, don't enjoy the, the lovely, beautiful weather too much. Hopefully it does rain in the desert. Maybe that will make England and, and Wales feel a little bit more at home. Um, but obviously, thank you to everyone for joining us this morning for this World Cup preview. Of course, you can keep up to date with all the latest from on and off the pitch in Doha, Qatar and everywhere else in between uh, across the Nero, the Express and the Star. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye.